Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Good evening and welcome to Just the Truth. We are live from Turning Point USA's Young Women's Leadership Summit. We've got a great lineup of amazing women, including my good friends Lila Rose, Christiani Allen, Harmeet Dillon, so many more from Turning Point USA. But before that, we have some breaking news from our very own John Solomon, editor-in-chief of Just the News. And he has reported on some breaking allegations against Hunter Biden. Remember, we've been following this for years. Where is Hunter? And watch how many times Joe Biden has denied any wrongdoing about Hunter. Vice President Biden, there have been questions about the work your son has done in China and for a Ukrainian energy company when you were vice president. In retrospect, was anything about those relationships inappropriate or unethical? Nothing was unethical. My son has not made money in terms of this thing about uh, what are you talking about? When you're vice president, isn't there a higher standard? Don't you need to know no. what's happening with your family? Don't you need to put down no. some guardrails? Um, um, unless there was something that was, uh, there was something on its face that was wrong. There's nothing on its face that was wrong. What was your role as vice president in, uh, in charge of policy in Ukraine and your son's job in Ukraine? How is that not a conflict of interest? It's not a conflict of interest. There's been no indication of any conflict of interest from Ukraine or anywhere else. Period. I'm not going to I'm not going to respond to that. These guys are attacking me and my family. I get it. And the press corps with me, they're all good people. Follow me. They keep asking me, you know, they just brought up your son, Hunter, and they're doing this and that. The other thing, the people who want to make hay in Washington are going to try to use your adult son as a cudgel against you. How do you feel about that? And what do you have to say to those people? I have, we have great confidence in our son. Uh, I am not concerned about any accusations been made against him. Pacing the floor like a prize fighter, Joe Biden punched back when challenged on how his son Hunter landed a lucrative position in Ukraine. You're a damn liar, man. That's not true. And no one has ever said that. No one has proved that. Joining me now is editor-in-chief of Just the News, John Solomon, with breaking news about Hunter Biden that pretty much dispels this myth. John, thanks for joining me tonight. Good to be with you, Jenna. Well, we got something fun. All right, so what is the news? Yeah. Yes. Hunter Biden's own laptop, the emails that the FBI received in December of 2019, put the lie to everything you just heard in that incredible role. Why? Because in the spring of 2016, two years into Hunter Biden's role as a board member, of uh, Burisma, the Ukrainian gas company, which, by the way, his father's administration considered corrupt. He went to work for a company his father's administration considered corrupt. But two years into it, they discovered Hunter Biden hadn't been paying IRS taxes on all that money he was getting from Burisma, about a million dollars of income for which he hadn't paid taxes. They were fe fearful. Why did they get scared? Because they had just gotten a subpoena from the FBI and the Securities and Exchange Commission demanding their financial records because Hunter Biden's business partner in the Burisma matter and many other things, uh, a guy named Devin Archer was about to be indicted for fraud. 
all of the bank records are going to be there, and their lawyers scrambled to try to come up with a good narrative. That's the word they use uh, to explain why Hunter Biden had not paid taxes on a really hefty sum of money from Ukraine. So now, five years later, we finally find out that we know the FBI knows it. And we know that Hunter Biden knew it the whole time his father was defending him, saying nothing ever went on wrong there. There was a tax dodging issue there. His own lawyers, his own accountant, write about it in plain English. We've put those emails up on Just the News so everybody can read and see what Hunter Biden's own lawyers, his own accountants were telling him. Wow. And John, this is shocking. And I think it's uh, it's it's actually not a uh, far leap for what most people have understood about Hunter Biden being uh, so shady. But I think the American people are really looking for accountability. And the question, of course, is, well, now what? Is there ever going to be accountability for Joe Biden, uh, who clearly in the clip that we just played for the 90 seconds, he has been adamant that there was no wrongdoing. Well, what happens now? Well, listen, if he's going to make those claims, he should have done a, a cursory explanation, go to his son and say, hey, son, did you ever have any problems? Was there a tax problem? Was there a lobbying problem? Was there a money laundering problem? Why do I say those words? Because those are, those are the words right now that the FBI told Hunter Biden he's under investigation for. He found that out in December. These emails and this laptop is part of a larger picture of evidence that the FBI has. But, you know, the most important thing to think about here, today's story completely destroys the Democratic justification for impeachment during the Ukraine impeachment trial of January 2020. Why? The storyline was Democrats said Donald Trump had to be impeached because he asked for an investigation of Hunter Biden when there was no wrongdoing by Hunter Biden. Guess what? There was. It was already known. Hunter Biden knew about it all the way back in 2016. Wow. So do you think that uh, the Democrats are actually going to have to eat their words? Are we going to see an apology from uh, Nancy Pelosi and Adam Schiff and all of these other impeachment managers to Donald Trump or uh, because the truth has come out? Or what, where do you think we go politically? Well, they've had here? a strategy for years. Give us a shiny object to draw attention away from whatever. Every time the story starts to reverse, let's look over here now. We'll change over here. We'll do something here. They've got their circus and they'll have a new shiny object to distract the mainstream media. Listen, it's incumbent on major news organizations. CNN, MSNBC, The New York Times, Fox News, to do what we're doing. Look at these documents, talk to the FBI agents, talk to the people who were there at the time, and confirm for the first time Hunter Biden had a tax problem that he knew about in 2016. Absolutely. And the mainstream media is so irresponsible in helping the Democrats shape their narrative. And as you just said, John, their own uh, lawyers were saying, let's figure out the narrative that we want to go with. And I think the American people are very tired of the mainstream media helping conceal the truth and helping uh, the Biden crime family get away with all of these lies. And so at what point do you think um, is this story going to be enough, in your opinion, as a journalist for the mainstream media to have to address it and cover it. Listen, if we were prosecutors and we were going to take the last five years of journalism and make a criminal case, we'd say, hey, you know, they, they lied about Russia collusion, they lied about Ukraine, they lied about uh, what happened at Lafayette Square, they lied about the COVID thing, and you would you'd build that case against the people that did it, and then you would indict or you would name the news media as the unindicted co-conspirators in this five-year conspiracy. At some point, the editors of these major institutions have to realize we've not been a little bit wrong. We've been substantially wrong, and we got to do something to fix it. So far, they don't seem to have any conscience to go back and recognize the harm, the damage they've done to the public, to politics, to our knowledge and our ability to make policy decisions on accurate information.
Wow. Well, John Solomon, that is why you are the most trusted name in journalism in Washington, D.C., and you'll continue to follow this story. Just the News is on top of everything. So thankful for your work, and thanks for that update. We are live here on Just the Truth from Turning Point USA's Young Women's Leadership Summit, and we'll be right back with more uh, from some amazing women who are champions for the truth, for conservatism, and truly helping young women get into the political sphere. We'll be right back. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. And welcome back to Just the Truth. And we are here at Turning Point USA's Young Women's Leadership Summit. And the energy here has been so fantastic. I am loving the conversations with these amazing women speakers. Uh, we have a great lineup for you tonight. And right now we're talking with Harmeet Dillon, who's a good friend of mine, a fellow attorney, and she is the president of the Center for American Liberty. So Harmeet, thank you so much for joining me again. Thanks, Jenna, happy to be here. Yeah, and so you are one of the speakers here, and we're gonna get into that topic, which is super fascinating that you're gonna be talking to the young ladies about uh, but first you and I have had um, a few a few different cases in California where you are uh, that are that focus on religious liberty also you're the attorney for uh, David Delighton who of course is the Planned Parenthood expose journalist so just a brief overview of where we're at with religious liberty and also First Amendment uh, journalistic freedom Right. Well, last year was a big challenge for religious liberties, particularly for people of faith, but also just about every category of American had their rights curtailed. And um, I believe my group filed the first federal civil rights lawsuit in California to challenge our governor's shutdown rules that even included barring people from being in a parking lot and listening to their pastor from their cars. And so through that litigation, multiple trips up to the United States Supreme Court in that case, Gish versus Newsom, South Bay versus Newsom, and then Tandon versus Newsom. Uh, it took us about a dozen trips to court to finally win three separate victories at the United States Supreme Court earlier this year. And that third victory, Tandon versus Newsom, really establishes a higher threshold for the government to curtail our religious liberties and requires that any law, like many of the laws, the shutdown laws that treated the houses of commerce differently than the houses of God, must be subject to strict scrutiny. And that's really what the, where the standard was before and where its standard should be. So I'm very proud of that work. But as you know, with the left, they're always seeking to eliminate God from our lives, family, and independence. And so it's always going to be a constant struggle for lawyers like us to continue to be vigilant and make sure that we're there and articulating these views in court. Yeah, and I'm so thankful that there are lawyers like you and I that are willing to stand firm and fight these fights. And you have been on the front line since the very beginning of the shutdown order saying this is unconstitutional absolutely not we are not going to just let this go because as uh, justice clarence thomas and others have said very clearly from mm -hmm. the supreme court that the constitution is not suspended in times of emergency and That's so right. to make sure that that is solidified is incredibly important right and i will tell you that number one it was quite unpopular amongst other lawyers mm -hmm. uh, and also a lot of conservatives didn't want to make waves on these issues and so even finding plaintiffs to stand up and um and take a stand on these issues was 
was a challenge, but we found them. We worked with other lawyers like you know Chuck Lamandry, Paul Jonah, and some other real heroes who stood up and used their legal expertise to fight these battles. And we also lost a lot. We all lost at the trial court. We all lost at the Ninth Circuit. And some of us lost at the Supreme Court more than once before we won those cases. So with the blessing of all the donors who supported our nonprofit and the plaintiffs who had the courage to stand up for what was right, um, it, it really was a rewarding experience as a civil rights lawyer. Yeah, and that's a really important point, too, that a lot of people forget, especially as they're looking at, for example, election integrity issues or other things, that you're not always going to win 100% of the time, that's especially right. in litigation, yeah. but mm -hmm. to continue moving it forward and to make sure that as facts come out, as, um, of course, as more has been coming out about Dr. Fauci's emails, you know, some of these other things, how uh, the state has, has treated churches differently, all of these things, we have have to continue to advocate for yep. truth regardless of how many times it's a seeming loss, but we'll continue to push forward. And you know what's interesting is some of the prominent conservative lawyers, uh, they look at it as a win-loss situation, just like a corporate client, and so mm -hmm. they don't want a loss on their, um, you know, their sort of record, sort of yeah. record <laughs> if you will. Yeah. But I sued the governor of California a dozen times last year. Um, three of those cases, eventually one in the Supreme Court. Some of those cases are ongoing. Most of those cases lost in the technical sense. But they lost because after being sued, the governor changed his orders. So for example, he opened the beaches of Orange County and the, the judges, the two judges dismissed our two lawsuits in state and federal court. Now, you know, in a corporate win-loss record, that's a loss. The people in Orange County would say that's a win. So sometimes you're able to achieve uh, goals outside the courtroom by the governor retreating, changing his rules, speeding up his schedule by putting pressure on him and, and public scrutiny that comes with high-impact civil rights litigation. And this has been something that the left has done very effectively for generations, dating back to the civil rights era, rightfully so. They use the courts to uh, expand the rights of minorities in our country. The conservative side has been quite reticent to do that, with the exception of some pro-life litigation that's been ongoing and some religious liberties litigation. But now that we're seeing uh, the governor and governments trying to shut down our businesses, our beaches, our, our ability to decide what we're going to wear on our faces, even if we're vaccinated, um, you know, we really do need a cadre of Republican conservative civil rights lawyers who yes. fight these battles. Yes, well, continue to fight those fights and <laughs> be on you. the front lines. And here at the Young Women's uh, Leadership Summit, one of the things that you're talking about is uh, your origin story, if you will, because as I think young women especially are listening to you right now, they're thinking, wow, I love the fact that Harmeet is on the front lines, but they don't see quite the pathway of getting there. And you and I were talking right before this segment that so many people just see the end result or the success or the That's now right. this is the place that I'm at, but they don't see all of the struggle. Yeah. They don't see um, perhaps some of the failures, some of yeah. the challenges that you've overcome, yeah. all of these things to get to where you are. So right. um, so for the young women who want to be the next Harmeet Dillon, <laughs> uh, what's your word to them? Well, there's no shortcuts to being a successful lawyer. You know that as well. And what we are just talking about is the tip of the iceberg, literally, and it, literally the tip of the part that's showing. The other 99% is the unglamorous part where you have to pull all-nighters, stay up late. You have to make ethical decisions about whether you can represent a particular client. You have to do the research to figure out, do you have a case? You have to tell a lot of clients, no, there is no path forward uh, within the current parameters of the law. That's disappointing and people get mad at you. So there's a lot of aspects of practicing law, but 
I started out as an immigrant to this country. I was born in India and my father's a doctor and he wanted to have a better life for his family. So during the Vietnam War, uh, there was a shortage of physicians in rural areas in our country. And so he came here, he had to sign up for the draft like everybody else. And luckily he didn't get called up and eventually we settled in rural North Carolina. And um, you know, my dad was a country doctor. And so that's how I grew up. And in the South, in the 1970s, um, the Democrats were in power. The Democrats were the party of Jim Crow. We still had vestiges of Jim Crow when I was growing up. And so my parents joined the Republican Party as a result of that because they didn't believe in discrimination. And so, you know, that's I learned about politics at my parents' dining room table. Uh, we had fundraisers for Republican politicians at our home, and they taught me how important it was, particularly as an immigrant, but as any citizen, to vote and to be engaged. And so I learned that, and that's the base on which when I went off to Dartmouth College, I became active in politics on campus, eventually was, you know, a campus leader in uh, the conservative newspaper. Dinesh D'Souza and Laura Ingram were my mentors at the Dartmouth Review. They were older than me back then. And, um, and from there, I pursued a law career instead of medical school, which is what I was originally intending to do. And I haven't looked back. It's been 20 year, 28 years now of practicing law. And, uh, I'm still doing it, and as you know, a lot of people have dropped out by this time because it's a hard profession, but uh, those victories like the ones we discussed earlier, they really keep you going, mm -hmm. and it's very rewarding to help people. And so I get up every morning, and I still love what I do. Yeah, and you're still very active as well in the Republican Party, and you know these are things that I think are so important for uh, people to recognize what the left is doing because as they're tearing down the traditional family, as they're saying, you know, we, uh, we, we don't want to have the traditional family faith freedom issues. Mm -hmm. For people like you that learned about politics around the dinner table, that's mm -hmm. exactly what they're trying to foreclose. That's right. And they're, they're trying to shame us. I mean, I live in mm -hmm. San Francisco by virtue of uh, accident of life. I moved there for a job and I decided I mm -hmm. liked the area and I stayed there. But I live in the most liberal place in America and mm -hmm. it's constant. And so if you don't have a fundamental grounding of who you are and what you believe, whether that's from your faith tradition, mm -hmm. which I have also, I'm a Sikh, or from, you know, some understanding of history, mm -hmm. uh, you are easily swayed. And it is so easy for young women particularly to be swayed by peer pressure mm -hmm. and expectations of others. And so I think it's really important to start from some kind of know who you are so that no matter where you are, whether it's a woke corporation, whether it's a college campus or a professor putting you on the spot for what you believe or what your t-shirt says, yeah. that you know who you are and stand up for that. And yeah. you are not alone. And you look here, there's 2,000 young women. Yeah. When you know I was growing up in rural North Carolina, there was no such event like this. And I didn't know who the other conservative young women were. And in mm -hmm. fact, you know, everyone looks at you funny if you stand up and take a position. And so, right. so I think this is so empowering and it's so thrilling to see that women are being reinforced by each other. And, uh, you know, and so I think it's really wonderful to see that women have these choices now. Um, and that's great. But I, to, to, as you mentioned, I am a member of the Republican National Committee. So mm -hmm. I represent California at the RNC. I was a fierce advocate for President Trump in the election, yes, and um, I'm an election lawyer in addition to the civil rights and business law that I do. And so uh, even in between major elections, we have to now be fighting about our election laws. That's a big mm -hmm. focus uh, of what I'm doing right now, uh, both in terms of advocacy as well as in terms of legal challenges, defending and filing. And, um, you know, there are a lot of other women lawyers at my firm, so I'm proud to 
to have a place where women can develop and grow as professionals as well. Yeah, and that's an important topic as well. And I know, I mean, everyone is asking any of us that were part of that effort and supported President Trump. And I know you, you were um, on the, the board for the Lawyers for Trump. Um, I think the, the chairperson. Lawyers for Trump, yes. women for Trump, mm -hmm. uh, Indian Americans for Trump, and Sikhs for Trump. I was a national co-chair of four different coalitions. Yeah, so as you're looking at moving forward and election integrity in the last minute that we have, uh, what is your expert opinion on where we need to go from here? Well, we need to insist that our election laws, as the Constitution provides, are made in the states and made mm -hmm. by state legislatures, not state judges and not state attorneys general waiving the laws. Battle in all of the 50 states and the six territories, and the left is fighting that battle. Every time a state legislature passes a package of election reform or voter ID, uh, Mark Elias on the left immediately files a lawsuit. So I'm engaged in defending some of those cases, and I'm engaged in filing our own affirmative cases as Good. well. And people so, need to know yep. that we are not letting this go, that That's lawyers right. are still on the ground fighting these fights, and we'll continue to amplify your efforts and what you're doing. And I'll have you back on soon to talk about thank all you. of that more. So for me, Dylan, much. thank you so much for joining me here, and we will be right back with more on Justin. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Welcome back to Just the Truth, and we are live today from Turning Point USA's Young Women's Leadership Summit. This is such a great event with empowering women speakers who are talking about really important issues for young women and the conservative movement. And joining me now is one of my favorite advocates for the pro-life movement. You know her really well. She is Lila Rose, and she is the president and founder of Live Action. Lila, thanks so much for joining me tonight. Absolutely. So you are a speaker here and of course uh, your mission and you are just such an amazing advocate for pro-life. And so what's your focus here at this summit? So I came to the summit, I got on the plane last night, I left my little toddler in bed and I was like, okay, there's all these powerful conservative women gathered together. What is most important for us as women? There's so many issues to talk about, right? Yes. And I, I really narrowed it down. There's two problems I see that are kind of underpinning all the political chaos and the social chaos. And the core problem is disrespect for life. Mm. And that is, it begins in the womb and there's 2,300 children killed daily by abortion in America. Mm. It's the leading cause of death. But then the question is like, how did we get there? And how do we get to a place, even with the transgender thing and feminism, how do we get to this place where uh, womanhood has been so denigrated? I mean, I think there's such confusion around what it even means to be a woman. Yes. And so I think the underpinning problem to the abortion problem is the misunderstanding and the misuse of sex, of sexuality. Mm. So I talked about that. It's not usually something that is talked about at, I think, political events, but, you know, post-sexual revolution, and I know you're familiar with this, post-sexual revolution, there was this new mantra that sex is no longer about marriage and love and commitment and bringing life into the world, but it's just this pastime, you know, it's like you do it with whomever as long as there's consent, right, so that's the buzzword, and you should have safe sex to prevent abortions, but women who have abortions, 51% of them are using contraception. 
So contraception's not sparing women from abortion in any way, shape, or form. So having that conversation of what does it mean for us as conservative women then, to raise the bar, to ask better and want better for ourselves and ask better for men. Mm -hmm. And so that was a, a big part of the speech. That's amazing. And I'm so glad that you're bringing it uh, back to the foundation of truth because as a believer yourself, of course, we know that God instituted marriage for a reason and human sexuality for a reason. And that decoupling idea of just saying, well, we can do whatever we want as consenting adults. I really see that on the right as a rise of sort of libertarianism, which is very separate and distinct from true genuine conservatism where we're conserving the principles of truth. And so how was this received by some of the young ladies who maybe hadn't so thought far, of that? I know. So far, so good. I had one young woman who said, you changed my mindset. Like That's amazing. You know, because I think it's so easy when you're swimming in our culture today. There's a lot of toxicity. I mean, basically, so much of marketing and advertising is pornographic. It's just like flaunting your sexuality to like sell stuff. Like that's most of Instagram, right? Right. Um, marriage is sort of joked about. Like people kind of fall in and out of love. And there's this, you know, denigration of the profound commitment that it is, the sacredness that it is. And we give people a pass. I think we give, especially men, a pass to just not even get married, to not be faithful, to not be true. And then women, I mean, girl, the children are the victims in the end because so many women are abandoned to go to abortion clinics then, and that's why we have such a sky-high abortion rate. So all of these factors, I mean, they're personal, they're difficult to talk about. You know, we're all affected by them differently, but that's the point. You know, mm -hmm. we're all affected by them, and, and this is the family, the strength of a family makes or breaks a society. Absolutely. And the, the level to which we as women hold the standard for in a society, mm -hmm. I think is the level to which that society will rise. And so, as conservative women, we should be raising the bar. Yes. And that was the, that's the message, and I think it did resonate with a lot of the women. That's so great, and you know, a lot of the young women, because this conference is specifically for women 15 yeah. to 26, so right in that yeah. age group where they're thinking about marriage, they're thinking about their next steps in uh, college and career, and so to have that sort of empowerment of truth, not just empowerment of the boss babe culture or the, uh, well, I have to just participate like a man in sex is what a lot of times our culture is teaching young women that if you uh, stand up and you fight for yourself then you can have sex like a man which is of course men shouldn't be doing that either right. but that's that's the mantra for the culture and so you know as you're advocating for life issues uh, that's that is at the forefront with everything going on now with the transgender movement you yeah. mentioned that even the definition of what it means to be a woman is under attack and so as um, as young women and especially young Christian conservative women are thinking through these issues uh, what do you think is the number one message that you want to tell them of how to best advocate for pro-life in today's political climate? That's a good question and it'll depend on our circumstances in part, you know, mm -hmm. who we're talking to, how we're talking, but I think, um, I think it's flipping the paradigm of what real empowerment means because mm -hmm. right now, like you said, it's this boss babe, it's like get out there and compete, it's, you know, it's sort of like, and also this a, a big focus on self-care, which is very important, and I talked about the importance of self-worth, but it flips to even selfishness, where it's like, it's all about us and our dreams and our pursuits, and if a baby gets in the way, mm. you know, have an abortion. I mean, that's basically a right. message that's shared. So I think it's a that, commodity at yeah, that point, which is so sad. Yeah, the child is seen as totally disrespected. So I think, I think the number one message for women is, listen, you're made for love. You're mm. made to love and be loved. You know, we're not made to compete and uh, ultimately, you know, stand on top of other people and like be their boss and like, you know, rule the rule the roost in that sense. I mean, we're not made to dominate, you know, we're made to love and, and part of love is service. 
you know, love as integrity. Love wants the good for the other. Mm -hmm. And whether that's the baby that we may be given even unexpectedly, like, you know, it's an unexpected pregnancy or it's the friend that we have or it's the man that we're dating. Ultimately, we want what's best for them and we want what's best for us. And that means we have to raise the bar for what that looks like. That means we're not going to say, you know, we're not, not going to sleep with you before we're married. You know, right. we're not, we're not going to do that. Marriage is, sex is sacred. That's what I believe. Mm -hmm. And it's raising the bar in that area. It's, you know, low, no tolerance for pornography. I think that's part of it. Our culture is so pornified and saying, listen, that's not respectful to me as a woman. Mm -hmm. And just saying, I don't, I don't tolerate that. So it's changing the dynamic because listen, our society will, will really be as strong as its strongest women, I believe. Yes. And strength is not, um, you know, the way that strength looks is ultimately it's a gentle strength grounded in morality. Like you say, yes. grounded in truth. And the yes. more women live that, we change we change the dynamic. Absolutely. And I see it all the time. I see other women standing up and living lives of virtue, even if it's lonely. Mm -hmm. You know, they're looked down on for it, but it makes a huge difference. It really does. And one of the things that I love about what you just said, too, is being these uh, quiet feminine advocates because there is a strength in that to be able to be bold and stand firm and have the ministry that you do but you do it in such a way that is very feminine and I love that because the Bible teaches of course that you know women have a completely different makeup than men and we're supposed to be different and I think there is this cultural lie that says that women in order to be effective have to be like men and that's such a lie because we shouldn't have to give up our femininity in order to be effective advocates for God and it's nothing about competition it's all about being who he made us right. to be and respecting that identity right. first and there's no cookie cutter femininity either I mean right. each woman will live it out differently and I think there's a spectrum as far as like how like girly that might look versus other women we're all going to be like you can have a woman be a scientist you can have a woman do anything i mean that's not it's right. not like a, a box for women in that sense mm -hmm. but i think the difference is women are made to be mothers mm -hmm. whether that's biological mothers or spiritual mothers we're not all going to be biological mothers many of us might be spiritual mothers um, men when they're fully mature are made to be fathers whether it's biological or spiritual that's a sign of maturity it means we're no longer the kid we're no longer even the sibling we're now the one who can help others grow mm -hmm. and i think that is the ultimate model that we want to live whether we have our own bio kids or not that's we want to be that one who helps nourish others right yes and helps exactly raise up the next the next group of people the next yes. generation which is exactly what we're doing here and uh you know having a lot of the women who are older than you know the, the 15 to 26 both you and I would fit into that category and to be that example older ladies and, now yeah, I love you know, <laughs> but I actually love yeah. that too because yeah. I had such great mentors in that age I when too. I was in that age bracket and now to be able to give back and to say you know we are part of that generation that can now raise up these young ladies who are here I think is amazing totally. so um, so in the last few minutes we have here I want to ask you first yeah. really quickly about the Supreme Court Mississippi case yes. what are your thoughts on that well I'm very optimistic I mean, the fact that the Supreme Court, with the makeup that we have, with all the justices who lean conservative, you could say they lean pro-life, I think there's some stalwarts like Justice Clarence Thomas is amazing. I wish they were all just like yes. him. Um, but the fact that we have, you could say, a majority, and they agreed to take this particular case mm -hmm. is a great sign because I think that they're ready to undo some of the 
really unjust and illogical damage of KCB Planned Parenthood, the case that said basically you can't ban abortions before viability. I mean, that's kind of the, the, the wrestling match, right? Can the state ban abortions at 15 weeks before this ever-changing line of viability, which medical <laughs> technology, we know, changes. And every Absolutely. pregnancy, the viability of the baby, the ability of that baby to survive outside the womb will change too. So it's a totally nonsensical, uh, uh, arbitrary line that's been yes. drawn by the Supreme Court historically. Roe v. Wade doesn't even make any sense. No one even knows what it says anymore. People right. don't know what it means. So I think the country is ripe for a good Supreme Court ruling that acknowledges life in the womb. Finally, what mm -hmm. science is crystal clear about, life doesn't begin at birth. It begins at fertilization, mm -hmm. and it, that child grows and can be born, and they deserve protections too. Yes. So I'm hopeful that the Supreme Court will uphold the law or tell the Fifth Circuit Court that they need to find a way to do it, mm -hmm. and I think it's going to be a step in the right direction. Yeah, I hope I'm so. And really, I'm, I'm sure yeah, yeah, already, absolutely. But, but no, I I'm completely optimistic. agree with you, and I'm optimistic as well. And I am praying for a really strong, sound Supreme Court decision that isn't arbitrary, like you said, because that yeah. rationale doesn't make sense. And yeah. the women who on the left who are saying, you know, there is a right to abortion right. in the Constitution, they're repeating a leftist talking right. point that doesn't exist. That's so the, problem. the precedent in abortion law is nonsensical. Yeah, the, the ground is ever changing. Roe stood for. Exactly, and the ground is ever changing. So it's time for the Supreme Court to say, let's be sensible. Life begins at fertilization as mm -hmm. a human being. They deserve protections under the 14th Amendment equal to anybody else. 14th Amendment equal protection under the law for all yep. people. State has an has a obligation to preserve the right to life, not to, not to harm the individual, take mm -hmm. away their life. So let's get, let's let's get logical. Do it. Let's yes, get and logical speaking of life as well, you have yes. Fighting for Life. I you can do. hold up your book. Yes. Uh, so this is Lila's <laughs> brand new book, and yes. she is signing it for me here today. Yes. I'm so excited of to course, read it. And course. so everyone should get this book because you are such an amazing Thank advocate you, for this issue. I will be praying for you and praying, of course, for the Supreme Court's decision. You, Wouldn't yes. that be wonderful to yes, celebrate? We'll celebrate together. <laughs> Absolutely, yes. Well, Lila Rose, thanks so thank much you. for joining me. And we will continue to be live right here on Real America's Voice through the weekend. So stay tuned as I continue to, uh, to interview some wonderful females for empowerment. We'll be right back. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Welcome back to Just the Truth. We are here at Turning Point USA's Young Women's Leadership Summit. I have had some amazing women who have been talking about the real issues facing young women today and for conservatism. And so joining me now is a speaker who is fresh off of the panel that she was speaking on today, Linda McMahon, who is the uh, chairperson of the America First Policy Institute and, of course, worked with the Trump administration in the Small Business Administration. So, Linda, thank you so much for joining me. It's great to be here, Jenna. Thanks for having Absolutely. me. Absolutely. Yes. So what was your topic on the panel? Well, it was wide-ranging. Um, we, we talked about what we did at America First Policy Institute. We talked about how we motivate young women. We talked about uh, you know, what are the, some of the issues that resonate with them. So it was really, we had a great moderator. There were three of us on the panel. And so we just kind of took turns and addressed a lot of issues. And it was fun because the crowd was very receptive. Uh, they seemed to... Um, 
like what it was we had to say to them. We were kind of challenging them a little bit, Good. and uh, hopefully they left with a couple of nuggets they could remember. <laughs> That's because so they are the future. Absolutely. They absolutely are our future, and uh, we are happy to see so many young women, you know, in that group, and uh, we bragged on ourselves a little bit that we were like three women who came from the Trump administration, and now we were three women who were leading this new institute. So it's, uh, it's, it's quite... Uh, it's quite impressive, I think. Yes, well, that's why I'm so excited to have you here and to talk more about uh, the America First Policy Institute as well, because, of course, with your transition from the Trump administration and all of the great work that you did with the SBA, I want to ask you about that as well, but then sure. also what you're focused on now with the Policy Institute. Well, America First Policy Institute was actually the brainchild and started by Brooke Rollins, who's the president and CEO. I'm the chair, and, uh, and Larry Kudlow is the vice chair. And... Brooke is sort of duplicating what she started uh, in Texas, which was with the Texas Public Policy Foundation. So about 15 years ago, she, so she knew exactly how to structure it. And of course, Brooke is being the director of national policy for the president and serving with him in the White House for the past three years. She, about six months before the end of the term, thought, you know what? We, we need to be ready for the next term. Mm -hmm. So she and Larry Kudlow, uh, and uh, I think it was um, Mr. O'Brien who had come in also. Mm -hmm. They sat down and they wanted to work through, okay, what, is, what are the next four years going to look like? So they actually developed policy for the next four years. Then when it didn't happen, that, that was the next four years. Okay, how do we continue these policies? How do we you know, keep you know, tax reduction, getting rid of regulations, um, you know, patriotic education, all of these things. How do we keep these wonderful policies going, you know, and not have the White House? And so the Institute was a great way to do that. So there are 21 centers within the Institute, each of them focusing on different of those kinds of topics. You know, education, tax reform, deregulation, China, uh, voter integrity, uh, all of those, you know, kinds of things. And uh, so each of those centers is led often by a former cabinet member mm -hmm. uh, who's the director or the chair. For instance, I'm the chair of AFPI, but I'm also chairing the Center for the American Worker, which will bring under it not only what the American workers are doing, but also small businesses and how the workers and the need for workers impact small businesses. And so it'll be a, a continuation of some of the things that I did. But AFPI, I think, is going to be sort of the the point of the spear that is going to become a, hopefully a hundred year program and institute to, uh, to really be not just a think tank, but a do tank. That's wonderful, and I love how you expressed that, and I think it's going to be really encouraging for a lot of people to recognize that even though Trump is not in the White House right now, where we would all prefer him to be, uh, that the work of his policies and truly America first sure. is continuing. And so are you finding, what are the challenges that you're finding now with being in the private sector versus uh, in the White House? Well, I, I don't really think that we're, we're not running into any obstacles. I think So I think we're looking at opportunity. So opportunity now is we're building the organization. I think we've rolled out technically about 14 of the centers, mm -hmm. but we've not really given a lot of press releases about them or really talked about them too much. We've rolled them out with, with white papers and doing some some media, but not you know, a great deal of media yet. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that'll be the plan when we're, you know, they, we roll them out then we have the heads of those particular centers that are talking about what those centers are doing. 
uh, and they're reaching out to their constituents. And so it'll really be a very grassroots effort to build uh, for AFPI because that's where you really have effectiveness. And if we're mm -hmm. going to talk about patriotic education and defeat things like critical race theory, mm -hmm. then we really want to be in the local state legislatures. We want to be in the communities. We want to be talking to those people because it's really not a D.C. play. Right. It's really a local play. And so that's where uh, that's where we're going to focus uh, our efforts. Yes, and federalism matters. And I think that yes, it does. especially in the midst of the pandemic, we saw that so uh, wonderfully expressed by President Trump with his emphasis on providing resources and education to the states, but sure. then allowing, of course, the states to do their job. And so there was an emphasis, of course, in that era on the Small Business Administration. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and so ex explain for the people who maybe didn't quite understand and parse through the mainstream media's narrative what your work was there and how you're now transitioning that work into AFPI. Well, with the Small Business Administration, uh, when I went, and of course my background uh, made it perfect for me to be the administrator for SBA because my husband and I built a company from the ground up sharing you know, a desk in the basement to start with and it, it grew, it became its World Wrestling Entertainment and it grew from just a small regional to national then a global enterprise and we took it public. So when I went and talked to small businesses and when I went to the district offices of SBA and I talked to them about, look, stand in the shoes of these small business owners, what do they need? They're going to need financing. They're going to need mentorships. They're going to need all the things that will help make them successful, you know, in the marketplace. So I went to all 68 district offices in wow. all 50 states in 14 months. Oh, my goodness. So it was really very, very busy. But it really helped develop the spirit within the SBA of everybody being on the same page. So uh, I thoroughly enjoyed that. Uh, and when I went to a local district office, we did press conferences. We toured small businesses. So that was so important to, you know, small businesses, you know, they are the backbone of the economy. Absolutely. And few people know this statistic. 99% of all businesses in this country are small businesses. Hmm. And so it's very wow. critical, you know, to keep them not only afloat, but to keep them really flourishing so that our economy flourishes. And the president really understood that and that's yes. why he wanted someone who could talk the talk and walk the walk. Yeah, someone with experience. Exactly. And what a great lesson for the young women here who are focused on impacting government, impacting certain policy, sure. but to recognize that it's really important to develop that experience in the private sector to then be able to bring it to government. Because I see a lot of young people in D.C. who want to be involved in politics but may not have that real-world experience. So hopefully that's something that the young ladies learned from you as well today. Yeah, I hope so. And when we were asked uh, by our moderator, you know, what is something you want to say to these young women yeah. and so my response was don't be afraid to take a risk don't mm. be afraid to fail yeah. and I told them the story I said look when my husband and I were younger we went bankrupt and lost everything mm. uh, I said my car was repossessed in the driveway I said our house was auctioned off I said it's not how you fall but how you get back up absolutely so don't be afraid to make mistakes that is you know, a wonderful Kind of reach story. for the stars and, you know, and, and live the American dream I have. Absolutely. Yes, you have, and the president, of course, has yes, he more has. than anyone. So thank <laughs> you so much for your service. Thank and, you. Uh, for the work that you're continuing to do at AFPI, and I really appreciate you coming on Just Thanks. the Truth tonight. It's really fun. Thanks thank so you. much. All right, okay. and we'll be right back with the more on Just the Truth from Turning Point USA's Young Women's Leadership Summit. I am so excited to be here. The energy here is absolutely incredible. We'll be here at Real America's Voice throughout the weekend, so stay tuned. We'll be right back.
And welcome back to Just the Truth. And we are here at Turning Point USA's Young Women's Leadership Summit. It has been an amazing evening here speaking to young women who are just so amazing and they are wanting to influence the culture for family, faith, and freedom. And I have someone right now who is doing just that, Christiani Allen, who is a Turning Point USA ambassador and also someone I've gotten to know really well over the last couple of years who is grounded in her faith, grounded in what she believes in and she's written a really amazing piece Christiani uh, that is talking about religious liberty globally and why that should concern Americans today absolutely and it's interesting because well no first thank you so much for having me on the show oh, I have thoroughly enjoyed following your work since thank we you. met at the launch of Falkirk yes at Liberty, Liberty University. University in 2019 and we have worked since then on a couple of other projects but <laughs> just a couple yeah but it's it's been an honor uh, to follow your work and congratulations on the show thank you well it's such an honor to have you on and thank I have you. loved following your work as well and you thank are you. a rising voice in conservatism thank so I'm you. grateful to have you on the show thank you so much and you know it's interesting you talked about the op-ed it I'm not an expert on this topic but as any American can I can look at the reports that are coming in and it's alarming. Um, we've had a lot of warning bells signaled when you look at some of these reports coming out. Um, I mean, just I brought, I was joking with them. I was like, I think I'm the first one to bring notes to one of these, but <laughs> I wanted to make sure I got the facts right. Mm -hmm. But today, 340 million Christians uh, face life threatening persecution for their faith. And uh, in 2019, BBC News reported Christian persecution is at near genocide levels. But the reason I decided to write this piece is I was actually reading an issue from Voice of the Martyrs. And it was about a story of a North Korean man. And he was on a business trip to China. And while he was in China, he was approached by a member of one of the churches there. And they asked him if he would be willing to accept a shipment of hidden Bibles upon his return to North Korea. And Minjae, which was his name, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, uh, very much reluctant to say yes due to the high risk of being imprisoned, tortured, or sent to one of North Korea's concentration camps. Um, but as he did commit his life to Christ, he saw it as the Lord's work, and he decided to say yes and to accept this shipment of hidden Bibles. And he was imprisoned and um, totally unsure of his fate, had no idea if he was going to be released. And while he was in his cell, he learned about other people who were imprisoned for the same reason, because of their faith. And he also heard, I mean, it's amazing how God works. He heard about other individuals who now were in concentration camps who um, received one of the sh uh, Bibles from this uh, hidden shipment that he had gotten and uh, who now were unsure of their faith. So really, like stories like Minjai's, uh, Minjai's The Bible Smuggler, it should compel Americans to double down in defense of the First Amendment and our precious uh, religious liberties, which much of the rest of the world does not enjoy. And that is one of the cornerstones of our American heritage. And I think it's worth defending and being aware if it's ever being infringed on, which, as you said, I mean, we're now seeing that that's happening globally and now in the United States of America. Yes, yes, and so beautifully expressed, Christiani, because I think a lot of Americans, especially um, of your age and the, and the young women here, have grown up in a society that has largely uh, allowed them to speak their voice and to have opinions on basically anything. But now that we're seeing the cancel culture movement, we're seeing some of uh, these attacks from the left in the midst of the COVID shutdowns mm -hmm. against churches specifically, yeah. we're having to recognize, well, wait a second, 
it's just one political act away from being taken away and we have to make sure that we are standing on the front lines and what would we do if that was us right if that was us saying uh, like Minjay that someone said well are you willing to risk imprisonment to do the right thing for your faith? How would we, we respond today? Absolutely, and, and honestly, like, if we're naive as Americans, if we are naively turning our cheek, or ignorantly, I should say, turning our cheek from the rising levels of religious persecution and hostility around the globe due to the naive belief that that persecution can never reach us, then we need to think again because hostility turns into violence and violence eventually turns into persecution. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, actually, the Heritage Foundation put it beautifully, they said that any government willing to infringe on the right of consciousness will not hesitate to infringe on your other rights. Mm. And um, I think, yeah, Very like true. I said, this is something that we need to be aware of. And if there ever is an infringement, then we need to, as a community, not look to the government to solve this. Because as I was writing this piece, I'm like, where do I conclude? Like, how do we how do we stop this? How do we fix this? I think it's a matter of education. It's not something that we should look to the government to fix. This is the American people assuming self-responsibility for our communities and realizing that this is something that, one, we need to be aware of and then crack down as a community if we ever need to. Yeah, so. and, and this is exactly what Turning Point USA is doing yes. by raising up voices Absolutely. like yourself that are willing to speak to these issues yeah. and willing to encourage others to say, hey, we need to champion this. We have to take ownership of yes. our responsibility yes. as good citizens yes. in America. And so for the young ladies who are looking at you and thinking, wow, she's such a bold advocate. How can right. I be more like Christiani? Uh, what was your story in getting involved in Turning Point USA, yeah. being an ambassador, and being a voice for liberty and freedom? Well, I'm just like them. I'm very much so put on my pants same way everyone else does and um, yeah but as far as like how I got involved with Turning Point it was in 2019 they started to expand and go into um, in the an influencer program and contacting these people who are being outspoken on their social media platforms large and small you don't have to have millions of followers to be outspoken and actually a couple of the ladies here like um, one of the questions is like how do you start well you start like really I mean I talk I think about like how I ended up uh, working for Rudy Giuliani and it really was just starting. I didn't come from a position or a family of, of politicians or I did not have connections. I just started and honestly by God like I ended up meeting the mayor and I got that position but um, it really is just starting. So like for those young women though, um, uh, getting more involved in like Turning Point. They, they Turning Point is looking for uh, proactive young individuals who are looking to make a difference in their communities mm -hmm. and again self-responsibility um, turning points based out of Arizona right but I mean you talk about all the states we need we need student activists Absolutely. and uh, yeah, so. yeah, we need young women, men and women across the country Absolutely. who are willing to stand up and say, even in my sphere of influence, you never know who is listening and you never know yes. the proximity to yes. another influencer, like you Absolutely. mentioned, you know, working for Mayor Giuliani. And yeah. so, um, so just in the last minute we have here, Christiani, yes. what do you think is the most important issue facing young people today? I think it's such an important question and I know you've asked some of the ladies and men here that question as well. And I, it, it's not about women to me, it's about men and women, it's about our younger generations and it's making sure that they're educated. I think we have such a, a need for foundational education when it comes to our beliefs and in apologetics I went to a Christian uni university, uh, Liberty University online for high school and college and they teach you in apologetics know what you believe and why you 
believe it, and um, Turning Point is doing just that. They're trying to educate people and equip with them with the knowledge and tools that they need. So, education. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And continue yeah. to speak the truth. So, thank absolutely. you so much, Christiane, for thank being you. here. Thank you. This was so wonderful. And this has been an amazing, amazing time here at Turning Point USA. Stick with us at Real America's Voice, Just the Truth.